Firstly, I'd just like to introduce myself. My name's Sean Rees, and I'm the Interim Director of the Health Experiences Institute, um, HEXI, which I'm, I'm, I know I know quite a lot of people in the audience, but I hope you'll have heard about it, and if not, come and talk to me afterwards, and I'll tell you about it. Um, this is one of the series um, of seminars that the uh, Health Experiences Institute runs with the Medicine and Management Programme, and the title of today's talk is Can Kindness Save the NHS? Well, I mean, it's a bit provocative. It sort of suggests that the NHS needs saving. Um, and I think that the reason for doing that and being a bit deliberately provocative wasn't that necessarily I think that the NHS needs saving, but that there are clearly things around in the zeitgeist about the way in which care is provided within the NHS, which bear consideration. So I think that none of us would probably disagree with the fact that actually if you look at Winterbourne View or Midstaffs, the sorts of things that are described there are perhaps the sort of things that should never happen. They're really you know, patients sitting in soiled linen, people drinking out of vases, the sorts of um, abuse of patients that um, we would all be horrified if it was us or our relatives. And of course, against that, I firmly believe, and I expect many of us do, that the vast majority of health and social care staff do not go to work to do a bad job. They go to work to do something that they think is valuable, to do something that they would hope provides care in the way that they wish to be cared for. So despite those sort of rather sort of conflicting ends of a sort of a, a picture of health care or health and social care, um, we need to think perhaps what kindness might have to do with that because there's something in the system, something in the relationship between patients, practitioners and the system in general which doesn't quite work at the moment. And so the provocative title was to sort of actually get everybody to think a little bit about what this means for us, what this means for the work that we do, what it means for the organisations that we manage. So just to start a little bit with um, thinking about context, and, and we asked people to send in examples of kindness. And I suppose I'd first like to say thank you for those people that did, um, and just share them with you, because the thing that was very striking is that they... They're quite varied as to what people think about when they think about kindness. So we had things like, uh, you know, very clear advocacy from a physio, which didn't need, the physio's job was not to do this, perhaps. Similarly, the sort of uh, beyond the call of duty, people saying, you know, that actually people stayed on to do something that was clearly a kindness because it was about the relationship with that particular patient or that particular mum in this, in this situation. Similarly, people who are working in healthcare saying that, you know, that actually they regularly overbook things, they do more work in a sense than they're expected to do in order that patients get the sort of care that they think that they ought to get. And that, or that, that actually kindness is a, a definition is about listening and responding with empathy. This is a, a really nice example where somebody who is a friend of a patient described how, even though they weren't related to the patient that, that, and, and the patient was, um, didn't have sort of next of kin nearby that the, that the, the nurse on the ward allow, allowed them to take part in trying to help get an understanding of what it is that this patient needed in order to get um, him home um, in a situation which would have been very difficult to do otherwise. And in terminal care, I mean, this is certain echoes my experience of, of my dad dying a couple of years ago, where we sort of you know, find that actually the caring that is provided at home or, or in a hospital environment um, allowed death to be as, as good as it perhaps can be. So those are the things that people told us, that, they, that that's what came to mind when they thought about kindness in healthcare. So quite a varied lot of things. And I suppose the other thing that I'd just like to share before we carry on is just to um, show... Um, uh, a, a brief clip from the Health Talk Online website which um, uh, pulls together research, qualitative research done within the university um, and this is a lady with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, who talks about two experiences of care um, which I think it's fairly obvious Anyway, eventually in the middle of August I got to see my local consultant and I went armed with a list of questions and uh, um, he let me work through a certain number of questions 
And then he got up and opened the door and held it open. And I said, oh, excuse me, I haven't finished asking questions yet. And he said, what do you expect me to do about that? I've got a waiting room full of patients. And I thought that was so insensitive. And he, he obviously had a, a spiel, which he recited. And he didn't do what uh, we used to do in social work, which is start where the client is. He didn't say, do you know anything about lymphoma? Do you know, have you, know, have you read, blah, blah, blah. With a, a consequence that I didn't get a chance to have a proper discussion about the fact that I'd read up about all the new treatments and I knew that monoclonal antibodies, rituximab, were the uh, treatment of choice for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, and I'd also found out that there was a um, research trial going on and I wanted to be on it. So I asked him about it, but he said, oh, no, no, that's winding down, that's finished. And I thought, that's odd, because why was it still on the internet looking very much alive if it was actually finished? So I had to wait another month till I had my next appointment with him, check my facts, and go back armed with the documentation saying this trial is very much, it's still recruiting, and it's only just begun to recruit, in fact, you know, far from what he said. So he then said, oh, well, all right, if you want to go on that trial, I will recommend you or refer you or whatever the procedure was. Um, as a result of the letter that my local consultant wrote, I went to see the teaching hospital consultant, who was like a breath of fresh air. He, was, uh, he believed in sort of two-way uh, consultations, having a conversation with the patient, uh, and at the end of it, he said, have you got any more questions, which I thought was absolutely wonderful. And he's also got, it's making me cry to think of it actually, because he's so lovely. The teaching hospital consultant was everything that a consultant should be. He was, he believed in having a two-way conversation with the patient, um, finding out what the patient wanted to know, making sure that all questions were answered, and even... Um, using metaphors that would, getting to know his patient and using metaphors to describe the illness that would fit in with the patient's experience. So he apparently said to um, one patient, um, or one patient asked him, what will chemotherapy be like? And that patient was a yachtsman. And he said, uh, some, I don't know the technical terms, but something like, well, it won't be uh, storm force, hurricane force 12, whatever it is, but it will be gale force 9. Uh, and uh, there, was, there was just such a gulf between these two consultants that when I met the one in the teaching hospital, I thought, I never want to see the, the one who'd ignored my letter and who'd refused to answer my questions and who'd actually, well, I'm reluctant to say lied to me about the trials, but had misinformed me about the trials. And I didn't feel confident enough of my knowledge at the time to contradict him. So I don't think she actually uses the word kindness anywhere in that, but I think that it's pretty clear that what she what she felt about those two experiences might well be described by other people as you know a lack of kindness and kindness shown. And it's not about being critical about the first consultant necessarily, because actually I hope that one of the things that will come out of the discussion today is, is you know there's something about context. People behave like that not on the whole because they wish to do wish that person to feel the way that she felt about it, but perhaps because of other things going on. So that's a little bit of context um, from both people in the audience and from uh, a, a patient, a direct patient experience. The next bit of context is just to ask um, Tony Berent, um, who is the Deputy Medical Director and uh, Consultant in Infectious Diseases from the Oxford University's Hospitals NHS Trust. <laughs> so he's going to tell us a little bit about why this why this issue of kindness in healthcare matters to him. So I guess there's a risk that this becomes like a sort of evangelical session with everyone standing up to say why, why it's important to them. But um, I caught up with John's book uh, about uh, three months ago, which was about two years too late in terms of being able to use it as a very obvious focus to take forward work that's been, I think, of interest to me and lots of people for quite a long time. Um, and uh, I really don't want to steal his thunder having now uh, heard him talk as well as read his book. I think we're in for a 
uh, a really uh, good experience this evening sort of working through his arguments about kindness and the implications of that and the implications of systems and processes that might degrade that over time. As a clinician, I guess I'm constantly confronted with the need to be kind and kind in the way the particular patient wants as opposed to the way that I think uh, is, is good enough. And as a manager, I'm constantly confronted by uh, the possibility or the reality that clinicians who I'm in some way responsible for or trying to lead will end up at times being unkind and unkind to the point that uh, people will either be unhappy or harm will occur. And uh, I think what's really important in the conversation is some of what Sean's already alluded to, that um, we need to be thinking not just about the kindness between the, the clinician and the patient, but maybe also between clinician and clinician and manager and clinician. And John joins that up very strongly in his arguments, which is, I think, part of why his book was so resonant for me and felt so important that we start having uh, the conversation in this kind of language, uh, uh, however uh, much it's interspersed with, with more businessy kinds of conversations um, uh, more of the time here in Oxford. So that's really all I've got to say. I'm really grateful for, for um, uh, Sean and Paul for agreeing to, to put this talk on as part of the series and really grateful for John for coming and talking to us this evening. We've already had a, uh, an encounter with him at the hospital this afternoon and I'm, I'm sure that that's going to help us with creating a bigger group of people for whom this kind of conversation is is okay and not something that we have to hide away in, in back rooms that we can make much more overt and explicit. Thanks, John. So I'd like to welcome John Ballett, who's our speaker for this evening. Um, John is the director of the Openings Consultancy, which works with individuals, teams and organisations to help look at the fit between individuals and the systems in which they work in. John's background is extremely varied, so he has um, been a commissioner, he's trained social workers, he's been an executive director in a large um, mental health trust, um, and we're totally delighted that he's come to talk about some of the work that he's done with his um, fellow co-author, uh, Penelope Campling, um, that led to the publication of this book, Intelligent Kindness. Over to you, John. And sure. uh, No. Okay, <laughs> time for dinner. Um, if you were hoping well, or fearing that you were going to meet somebody, some snake oil salesman who believed there's a solution to the problems of the NHS that can be named in one word or one day, uh, you've got the wrong person. Um, however, I do think the NHS is under great risk from a lot of things, from lack of resources, from limits to resources, from attacks of various kinds, uh, envious, conscious, unconscious, uh, motive, motivated by good and bad intentions, but it's under threat. Um, at the very least, it's under threat every moment of every day because the task is really difficult and it can be got wrong at any point. And so I think the first thing I'd want to say is with some humility, um, I am speaking as one of two authors, one of whom is a clinician and not present, uh, and my wife, so very present, um, and myself with a background originally in practice in therapeutic communities where we lived and learnt and worked through difficulties uh, with some of the issues about what being a practitioner and what being a patient was being blurred and confused and needing to be worked through all the time. Uh, and I also speak with some um, humility because I'm going to, in what I'm talking about, um, say some things that I feel strongly about and sometimes when I feel strongly I can sound very arrogant. Uh, and I want you to know that and to hear that in advance because my wife's not here to tell me. Um, and more to the point, my 15-year-old stepdaughter is not here to tell me. But what I want to talk a bit about is uh, what um, I'm sophisticatedly calling the cultivation of intelligent kindness. And the reason uh, I'm using those words is because we're getting a lot of talk at the moment about changing the culture. Uh, a lot of talk, right from the top, uh, from David Cameron, from Mandy Burnham, from Jeremy Hunt, uh, across the whole spectrum, we're hearing a lot about changing culture. And I'm not hearing an awful lot of Monty Don-type 
horticultural knowledge in all this, I'm hearing a lot of stuff about thou shalt and it must uh, and if we bang it hard enough or if we give it a pill, uh, if we increase the polypharmacy that's going into the NHS with a bit of cultural medicine, uh, it'll change. Uh, and I think that's ignorant. Uh, understandable, passionate, but ignorant. I don't know much about gardening. In fact, I hate gardening, but I like gardens. And I do know uh, that there's something about culture that is different from thinking about lateral, linear, uh, sort of uh, cause-effect kinds of things. Uh, and if I've got a slide that can help, uh, it betrays something of my major interest in life, um, which is not the Pinot Noir from this vineyard, actually, it's, uh, it's the Sauvignon. But um, Bogle Vineyards in California um, have a, a very nice label. My wife can't drink because she's got some um, serious migraine, but she reads the bottles occasionally while I glug. Uh, and she read this one and said, why don't we have this in our slides? And what Bogle Vineyards say is, as grape growers, we hold... High regard, I can't read it from this distance, I'm having to turn around. High regard for the mindful tending of the soil and the exacting knowledge of the seller. We both agreed that that was a better strat line than any NHS trust we've ever seen. We value our patients, we value our staff, our staff for our greatest asset, here to care, all that sort of stuff. This is a statement on a label of a wine bottle that betrays more about understanding of culture than most things that one encounters uh, in the press and in learned journals. They realize that um, they don't even say we're winemakers. They know they're there to, to, to enable something called grape growing. They also know that uh, they need to know the context for growing those grapes. They need to know something about the soil, what goes on in the soil, what you need to put into the soil how soil interacts with weather, how soil interacts with seeds, etc., etc. They also know that um, they've got to then know what to do with the product that they grow in that soil, uh, the, the, this exacting knowledge of the cellar, uh, the temperature in which they put this wine in bottles or this nascent wine in bottles and what happens to it while it's being looked after. Um, dare I say they have some sort of sense of a system as opposed to an ecosystem even uh, as opposed to a linear mechanical cause-effect simple cause-effect sort of model and I want to talk a bit about growing something in the NHS uh, which is what I think um, clinicians and others and patients would agree we should be growing uh, in the sense of delivering I don't mean growing it because we ain't got it. I mean, it is the product. It is the thing. I'm not calling it the wine. I'm not calling it the grapes. So perhaps I am saying it's the grapes, it's the plant. Um, and what, what I'm talking about is culture, the culture that promotes or grows intelligent kindness. And I want to say a bit about intelligent kindness now. We chose the expression partly out of provocative reasons, Penny and I. We thought the word kindness was even more icky in profound male, masculine, scientific culture and, 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 and uh, company than the word compassion. Uh, we thought that people turned away even quicker when you used the word kindness than they did when they talked about soft, soggy things to do with kind, uh, compassion, etc., etc. I may sound cynical, but I've been around and I've sat in rooms with people who've got very busy jobs, very important jobs, who can say very quickly, we care about our staff, we care about our patients, we care about the environment, etc., etc., and then they get on with the business. Compassion is often the elderly relative sitting at the dinner party who you welcome and you say a lot of things to and then you get on with the serious business about talking politics, making risky jokes, being posh. Or the child who gets patted on the head before she goes to bed uh, and then the adults get down to things. Well, that was true until Mid-Staffordshire Hospital until it became a really, really, really frightening absence around the table. Uh, and actually, that's become slightly frightening. I don't think Penny and I would have wanted the vigour of response to our book to be driven by what happened in Mid-Staffordshire to the patients. 
but we would also not want it to be driven by the knee-jerk response of politicians and senior managers and senior people in the NHS who want us all to get compassionate really quickly and will do you a damage if you don't. So, intelligent kindness challenges the notion we hope that kindness is something separate from reason, intelligence and science, uh, that something is done in addition to doing something well, it's done as an integrated part of the plant. If you like, uh, to follow my metaphor, the grape and the vine are two things, and kindness, uh, it may be the vine, and the grape might be the technical intervention, or vice versa. They are one thing, not two separate things. Another thing about intelligent kindness is recognizing why kindness is difficult, rather than suggesting that it's an easy technical skill that we can add to the NHS's repertoire. And another thing about intelligent kindness is, I guess, about realizing uh, what uh, nurtures it, uh, what helps it grow, what sustains it, and what threatens to kill it. So that's what I want to say about intelligent kindness. Now, I talked about kindness being icky. I'm not alone. Adam Phillips, the psychoanalyst, and Barbara Taylor, the uh, sociologist, write in their book, that basically what was a, a profoundly political enlightenment virtue that lay behind things like liberté, égalité, fraternité, around all sorts of philosophical and moral and ethical notions, was downgraded through particularly the 19th century to being something that belonged in the nursery, belonged with uh, clergy, uh, women, lots of you around, so we're glad that we've got a compassionate crew here, um, romantic poets, etc. I usually play the game of saying who's the romantic poets, who are the clergymen, who are the charity workers, and who are the women. Uh, none of the men put their hands up when, when I asked the last question. Very few romantic poets come to these gatherings either, which I think is a mess. But uh, nonetheless, uh, there's a pretty clear trajectory of kindness being knocked out of the public discourse is anything particularly valuable as we sow the seven seas, uh, had the industrial revolution, developed technical skill, had scientific and other kinds of revolutions that were largely uh, to do with men. I remember reading about Marie Curie when I was 13 and thinking there was something sort of courageous about this woman who was a scientist at the time and also died for her science and her husband and her kind of struggled through all this but nonetheless on the whole science and technology was a male enterprise uh, and it was a positivistic a logical positivistic exercise of technique of skill of get rid of the sentiment get rid of the mess and let's get on with the task and why should we be puzzled that we have difficulty now reinstating it Let's try and reinstate it. Let's talk about rescuing the idea. The word kindness originally has its roots in the word kint, an old English noun meaning kind, nature, family, lineage, an usness, a thingness, an isness, uh, as opposed to a feeling, uh, a soppiness. Uh, it, it, it's a state of nature. We are of a kind, we are of a family, we are of a kin, etc. Before it is an emotion, before it's a nice, soft, emotional, generous sort of thing, it's an awareness, it's a mindfulness, it's kinship recognized. I see that you are of our kind. I am moved by that. I'm not being terribly cognitive behavioral here, but before I feel, I note, I notice, I attend. And I'm moved by that attention and that recognition to a set of responses and feelings and uh, a sense of relationship with the other. Yes, along the way, things like generosity and compassion, suffering with the other, etc., etc., come along. But compassion without kinship is pity. Pity without kinship is condescension. Without that sense of kinship, that we are of the same kind, we lose what this intelligent kindness notion is attempting to, uh, to capture, and we grow, uh, perhaps, uh, I don't know, Christopher Hitchin uh, talks about Mother Teresa in rather nasty terms, let's be clear, he, he didn't hold back, but he does suggest that in her charity was a degree of condescension, 
and the degree of uh, seeing the suffering of the other as something that gave her the opportunity to, something, to do something good rather than a sense of entire connectedness that might lead to both her and the poor moving forward. And I feel very strongly that it's very important to recognize the ways in which the word kindness and compassion can elide into things like pity, condescension, putting oneself out for, etc. Um, kindness as I'm trying to describe this flower, this plant that the NHS might be trying to grow, this techno-emotional, techno-spiritual, techno-political thing, um, is not about um, me deciding to put you first. It is a recognition that we are first. It's a collective thing my interests and your interests are connected at all times so this is a political a, coll a collective thing not just an individual thing it's not just that i am moved to be nice to you for whatever motives even my recognition that we're of the same family it is that there is a dawned awareness that our destiny belongs together we are a collective the nhs is probably the greatest expression of this kind of connectedness that the Western world certainly has created. It's very large, it's been around for quite a long time, and it ba is based upon the notion of common interest in the ways that uh, I've been talking about. The Constitution, I'm not a great one for reading Department of Health announcements, mm -hmm. but the, the Constitution of the NHS does say that the NHS is founded on a common set of principles and values that bind together the community and the people it serves, patients and public, and the staff who work for it. Now there in that sentence is a whole lot of stuff that maybe represents that common interest, that collectiveness, that equality that social capital research suggests is vital to the well-being of communities that Wilson and Wilkinson and Pickett in their book The Spirit Level talk about as being critical to the health of communities uh, that equal communities have better health, lower crime, etc, etc um, and, that, and that helps both the top and the bottom of the communities, etc so there's a representation of this kind of knowledge uh, in, in the constitution but let's bring it down from that political collective level for a minute to the individual. And let's see two, th three stories about three individuals who are cleaners in hospitals in Canada. Janitors, they are. You might read them through rather than me boring you by repeating it while you read. But basically, each of those stories describes some sense of connectedness, recognition, being moved to understand the situation, being able to do something in response that intervenes into the human situation. Now the first one, pretty much common sense. If somebody's trying to walk around, don't make them fall over by making the floor slippery. I mean, it's nothing rocket sciencey there, is there? The second one shows a little bit of rebellion. Charlene says no to her boss uh, and doesn't uh, vacuum the lounge because she doesn't want to wake those people up. Yeah? And the third is frankly bizarre, isn't it? Luke goes, that angry dad who's beside himself didn't see me clean this the first time. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to clean it again so he sees it so that what? Daddy's calmer, happier, nicer, I don't know. He probably just expressed, did it because he felt it was the right thing to do. He didn't necessarily feel that he was being generous. But what was all that about? Now, this is less down to earth than the janitors. And by the way, we would suggest that that kind of responsiveness is as relevant for a brain surgeon or for somebody sawing a leg off or for somebody prescribing very, very complex medication to somebody who's in a state, uh, as it is for a janitor, that kind of ability to, 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 to work things out. More of that in a minute. But let's look at what is involved in that kind of responsiveness. We would argue that for Luke, Charlene, and their, their friend, they began with a sense of kinship. 
I and thou and we are of the same ilk, the same nature. That, that, that knowledge, that ability to carry that through, despite being at the bottom of the, the pile in that hospital, led them to be moved to attend to the other with a sense of kindness, of recognition, of in-kindness, that directed their attention to be attentive to what was happening to them. That attentiveness enabled them to attune to what the person or persons they were with were going through. That attunement developed a degree of trust. With luck, the comatose young man's father trusted the hospital more <coughs> after that intervention, etc. Now, attachment theory, Bowlby and company, says that this is real. That this is not just John and Penny deciding that there's a lovely, you know, yet another map that can be drawn about the way the world is. Neuroscience suggests it. Study of the chemicals wandering around this adult brain of mine says it happens. Studies of mother-daughter, particularly mother-daughter, but parent-child relationships proves or tends to suggest that this virtuous circle is real. It's not a fantasy it's not separate, it's, not, it's, 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 as, it's as real as many of the processes we as managers or clinicians uh, deliver. It also um, is demonstrated by some rather hard evidence like wound healing and pain reduction and things like that, that uh, people whose oxytocin, etc., etc., is inspired by various kinds of connection, seem their wounds seem to heal uh, more quickly. Penny and I think more research should go into this in terms of the quality of connection and the effect on physical uh, recovery than there is. But there's a lot of work in psychological uh, studies where, for example, um, to, the, to the chagrin of many an argumentative psychotherapist, uh, it's been pretty seriously proven that being able to enact this, to build this kind of relationship is more important than the model you use as a psychotherapist. So the argument between cognitive behavioral therapy and psychoanalysis or whatever uh, has to be seen against the background that at least 60% of the effectiveness is the quality of the person and the relationship and their ability to connect with the person. And that's not just with sort of minor anxiety, that's with quite serious psychological problems. But of course, the other thing here is that anybody in this room who's ever been to the doctor with an embarrassing disease knows that this is true as well. It's taken me quite a long time to reveal some of the deeper and darker secrets of my ageing to my GP. And it's emerged thanks to my building up a degree of trust with that GP. We know that 45% of the British public are not literate enough, health literate enough, to understand what their clinician is saying to them. That's Jill Rowland at um, South Bank and now King's College London, GP professor who's done a lot of work on health literacy. A lot of her work is around whether people can read the label on their bottles, understand the advice that the GP gives, etc., etc. But actually, if you broaden it, 45% of our kin go away from their treatment without understanding or without knowing how to cooperate with it, etc. Of people with long-term conditions, it's 65%, according to their research. Now, this is efficient, isn't it? It's not separate. This is not compassion separate from efficiency and effectiveness and all those different little boxes that we get ticks to performance manage our work with. It's the same thing. Efficiency will emerge from this virtuous circle. To coin a phrase from management stuff, we'll get it right first time if we built up that trust through the patient feeling that they are involved in this virtuous circle. We'll get better outcomes. So this is not separate from business efficiency. More to the point, it's a virtuous circle. It's not just one of the NHS's classic triangles with kinship at the bottom and better outcomes at the top. It's a virtuous circle because actually if you're part of a relationship like this, not just clinician-patient, 
expert, clinician, clinician, teamwork, etc., etc. It builds confidence, communication. Somebody mentions when they've seen something. Somebody who walks past a bed where somebody's in there, vomits, says something about it. There's a virtuous circle for everybody, not just in a one-to-one -one exchange. So, if this is the plant, the vine and the I'm sounding very biblical today. The vine and the, and the grape uh, that might produce the wine of recovery and a healthy NHS. What, what is difficult about it? Well, Michael Chance, an ethologist from Birmingham, talked in his studies of primates about two particular social modalities. One called the agonic. And I... Well, Tony's already seen me do this, and I do this with my body. Baboons spend a lot of time looking over their shoulder, worrying about who's going to hurt them, and uh, turning to people in authority, uh, sorry, baboons in authority, um, and making sure that violence is constantly suppressed, uh, and pecking order sort of stuff, and uh, very cautious moving around in their social en encounters, etc., etc., Chimpanzees lie around drinking and smoking dope. <laughs> Hedonic. They, uh, I'll be more serious. What they do is they caress each other, they play with each other, they spend a lot of time finding uh, playful, emotionally friendly links with each other, etc., etc. They bounce around, etc., etc., and, and touch each other uh, and are kind, who knows, to each other. Strangely enough, though, what they also do is notice when babies are going to fall out of the tree and catch them, or realize that this object can be used as a tool. They, according to chance, these chimpanzees and gorillas, have an imagination and a curiosity and an intelligence that the baboons don't have. Now, I've never worked in an organization that is agonic, have you? I have. I will admit I have. Chance says, actually, that human beings move in and out of those modes quite a lot. Uh, and sometimes agonic is sensible. But um, on the whole, one would think, wouldn't one, that the hedonic, the playful, the uh, emotionally connected, that produces the curiosity and the problem-solving and the imagination and the intelligence would be the right way forward, wouldn't one? Uh, I like this picture. I always have to say this, isn't it lovely watching somebody or even being the person who's taking the lice out of a child's hair? It's one of the most intimate sort of things there is. And the child is always ashamed of having the lice and doesn't want their, their friends at school to know they've got it. So there's something else going on there, isn't there, about sharing, about connection, uh, going back to you know my hemorrhoids and whether I can tell my doctor about them. You'll never know whether I have, because I wouldn't admit it. Um, there, there is something about that space that the chimpanzees and the, babu and the uh, gorillas have, isn't there? Well, hmm, it's a bit more complicated, and maybe we get a bit of sense of what might go on at Mid-Staffordshire Hospital. Jane Goodall took a bunch of students to look at chimpanzees in Gombe in Tanzania in the 60s. Being sensible human beings and having a limited budget, they thought of efficiency. We don't use that word in this room, do we? We thought of efficiency. So what they did was, instead of having to follow the chimps through the forest to find them and to check what's going on, etc., and use loads of energy and food and spend a lot of time doing it, they uh, put piles of bananas in places around the, the forest so that the chimps would come to them. Very sensible, isn't it? They could sit there and read it and put their feet up and study the chimps, etc., etc. Um, what happened was what Michael Chance calls a collapse, which was murder and mayhem. These friendly chimps who delouse each other, who are kind, who kiss, who catch babies when they're falling out of trees and all that sort of thing, turned on each other and murdered each other. Chance suggests several things. First, that the hedonic culture is the most vulnerable. Agonic cultures don't actually collapse into that murderousness. A good, tight ship doesn't collapse into violence, etc., etc. 
He also suggests another word we never use in the NHS, that competition led to part of the collapse of this hedonic culture. So efficiency we never use, competition we never use, do we? So competition damaged the equality and the links and the uh, imaginative connection and the common purpose and common experience of these chimps. But more importantly, and me not making cheap shots at comp competition, more importantly, what he observed and what he felt very strongly was that it was the distraction from the habits of connection and exchange that sustained that hedonic culture. It wasn't as if it was a hedonic culture that suddenly collapsed. It was that work was going on to keep that culture hedonic. It was about the delousing. It was about the connection. It was about the kissing and the cuddling and the playing. They were all distracted from it because they became banana hunters and banana protectors and things like that. And it damaged the hedonic culture enormously. The baboons are not particularly vulnerable to this, but they just don't get down to much caring, much creativity, they don't solve problems, uh, they certainly don't do brain surgery. But human beings are more vulnerable than other primates to this. We know this from social and psychoanalytical, psychological study. We know that uh, from the Milgram experiments that perfectly good, decent, middle-class students will administer what they think to be near-fatal electric shocks to people because they trust the authority figure who's asking them to do it. So we know, A, that authority pressures and authority <coughs> relationships can seriously pervert the hedonic culture. We know from Philip Zimbardo's experiments that if we split this room into prisoners and warders and set up a simulation. Within a few days we'll have to stop the simulation because the relationships will get so bad, there'll be suicidal behavior, there'll be violence, there'll be depression, really rapidly emerging. In, and this experiment has been repeated several times. They've always had to stop it. They've never managed to get to the end of the planned time for the Zimbardo prison experiments. And thirdly, we also know, uh, so, so role, role uh, pressures and role uh, conspiracy, if you like, can lead to people's uh, culture being seriously skewed. Thirdly, though, let's be quite clear, this gets right down to a perceptual level. We can quite easily, by sending Sean out of the room and all agreeing that a piece of string is four inches long, uh, even though it's a foot long, invite her back in and within about 20 minutes we can persuade her, at the very longest, we can persuade her that the string is the size we've all pretended it is. Our perceptions can be very seriously affected by group processes and group pressures. But let's also talk about why, in healthcare particularly, we are so vulnerable to tipping over. What's the internal stuff? that leads us to be vulnerable, to be knocked over, to be so easily, apparently, thrown off course. Dependency is frightening. And the medics in the room, I apologize for repeating what you've known all your lives, but what you've been taught to pretend isn't true, so you can get to work, and what you've also been able to, in your chats around the beer barrel, as it were, demean yourselves by not remembering just quite how tiring and costly the work is. Dependency is frightening. I always tell the story of seeing photographs of 1950s fathers being given babies for the first time. <laughs> Just that. Ill-being, i.e. the person and the social situation around the illness, is complicated, communication gets very difficult, irritation, shame, guilt, anger, etc., etc., are part of even having a wart, let alone a serious illness. Decay, madness and death are terrifying and we live now in a society where decay, madness and death are much further away from our general awareness. What is it? Was it in 1910 that the average 15-year-old had seen three dead bodies? It might have been in 1895, uh, um, but very close to the turn of the century before the 20th, 20th century. Um, 
as a society, we put madness, decay, and death behind all sorts of walls, uh, and partly because of the success of our uh, sewage systems, we don't have quite as much death. Um, but it's, it's, it's further away than it ever was. It was hard work being with it when it was daily. It's pretty hard work for people, young middle-class people, young working-class people, males, females, anybody, to have to spend all their time close to decay, madness, and death. And Penny and I would argue that without asking people to become victims, the system recognizing just how difficult that encounter is and remembering that all the time would be a much more humane system than it is. These things, we say, arouse rage, the urge to turn away, and deep anxiety. In the practitioner, in the manager who finds it all a bit too complicated, but in society, we don't want it. We, we, we want it to be looked after by somebody else. And as Anton Obholster Batavi once said in a book, the NHS becomes a keep death at bay organization, not one that uh, heals illness and, and, and helps people die if they, if they have to. It pushes, it's part of a process of denial as much as it's a process of engagement with these difficulties. Now we're still talking about this, this plant we're trying to grow, intelligent kindness, and we're looking at some of the conditions that are, are involved in nurturing it, in, in producing it in our flower beds or whatever. Kinship is not only frightening for the individual. This dependency, this, this 1950s father is not just the only body who panics because of dependency. Society worries about it, doesn't like it. In a society of individualism, of health, of uh, vigor, of uh, you can have a dream, you follow your dream, etc. We don't like trouble. We don't like that trouble to be man managed by mental health services, learning disability services, etc. We don't like it to be around. Part of our ambition as a society is that those services, and I'm talking about unconscious motivations, I guess, is that those services will eradicate those things, not live with them, not cope with them, not heal them. We also are threatened by the sharing of our resources. We share risk in the NHS. We share vulnerability and dependency, and we share the limits to our resources, which is terrifying. Those American right-wingers who accused Obama of being a Satanist, a communist, and a Muslim terrorist because he tried to argue that health insurance uh, needed modifying in the states and some form of collective uh, safety net needed developing more were not that different from some parts of me, really. I'm paying my taxes. You need a brain operation, but, 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 but I don't. Why am I spending my money on you? Surely, if I just look after myself, I'll be healthier. The American right wing actually believes, despite the evidence in America of it having the lowest social mobility in the developed world, of having infant mortality rates worse than Cuba, it still believes that looking after yourself, not harnessing sharing risk, not being with others, not sharing resources and the limits to those resources is a good thing. Okay, I can vilify the American right. I'm saying it's a normal collective emotion as well, though, and that we have it in this society, and it may lead to quite a lot of the angry prodding of the NHS that politicians and others have been doing for quite some time. We may actually resent it. We've certainly learnt to resent paying taxes over my lifetime, haven't we? Who was it who recently said in the press that they were proud to be paying high taxes because it meant they were wealthy? <laughs> it was amazing. Since Margaret Thatcher and perhaps before, we've been taught that pooling our resources is a bad thing. And now we're surprised that Amazon aren't paying their taxes. It's bizarre. And we also have these issues about who belongs in our kinship, don't we? I'm a heavy drinker, as you know from the previous slides. Um, so, should I have a liver, liver transplant? I smoke, should I have respiratory care? I'm promiscuous, so should I have my STD care? Um, I am weirdly disabled by really complex learning disabilities. Why should we adapt our methodologies to look after you? 
Now, nobody will admit to these feelings. I've worked with people with profound learning disabilities. I had to learn that I had some difficulties allowing myself to be in the same world as them at times. I've worked with people with very severe mental health difficulties and found it difficult to be in the same room as them. Not just because of the decay, madness and death, but because they were different from me. Older people, we have managed to ghettoise and ghettoise and get the biggest ghetto in the world, aren't they, older people? And they're an embarrassment to us financially and in all sorts of ways as a society. It's a problem. And of course, our acute hospitals, uh, for whom I've named most of their, their patients, are not at best designed for these people with complex needs uh, whose usness, whose kinship with us, the people who want technical solutions and throughput, etc., etc., um, and who want to be able to simplify and understand and link with the people we're working with, uh, they're, not, they're not easy. And of course, in social policy, we make it more difficult. We split, we swing in working with these groups who do or and don't belong in our kinship, we swung between sending people with mental health difficulties off into long-term asylums and then abandoning them in the community without the supports they need. We've developed methodologies like recovery in mental health, which is brilliant and important and supports the independence and the well-being. But at the same time, we've got risk-averse and paranoid and sent loads and loads of them off into medium-secure units, more than we've ever done. We split between overprotection of people with learning disabilities and then saying, oh, they can look after themselves. And I'm not exaggerating that. I've sat with directors of social services who've said, oh, if we increase our eligibility criteria uh, up there, it's all right. Our enablement schemes will help all these other people. People who, before they removed the, the, the criteria, could not manage their own lives, were vulnerable to their neighbours. And these were directors of social services in areas where people with learning disabilities have been murdered. So, uh, if I sound passionate here, I am passionate. This issue about the struggle to understand the breadth of vulnerability and sameness, difference and sameness, in groups who are a bit difficult to include in the usness, is incredibly serious in my view. And it affects our ability to be intelligently kind. So, being kin is hard work. It involves processing anxiety, staying open and inclusive, managing ambivalence about people, hatred and disgust. It involves what Roman Tallis, who's a geriatrician that many people in the room will know about, um, and philosopher, calls self-overcoming. A constant act of self-overcoming on the part of healthcare staff. I would suggest, in a sense, having an NHS involves a constant act of self-overcoming on the part of the population. We have to realise that there are sacrifices and difficulties involved in pouring all our money and our resources into this. But let's stick with TALIS and staff, clinical staff particularly. That self-overcoming is a constant, tiring, costly process that, if it isn't supported, leads to blindness, leads to turning away, leads to burnout, leads to all sorts of neglect of themselves, let alone of patients. If you haven't seen it, I have. And I've seen clinicians who are disabled by their self-overcoming or their failures to self-overcome or their lack of support for their self-overcoming. Being kin also, though, involves big systems. It's easy if you just have a personal buying arrangement with doctors as an individual, but if we have a massive process like the NHS, or indeed the welfare state, we have to have processes that manage it, that organise it. And those processes can constantly threaten, like the bananas, to crash the hedonic mode. I've teased about competition and about efficiency and things like that. Um, yes, they can intervene and, and tip the hedonic mode, the connected, intelligently kind system. And we need to keep an eye on that all the time. For me, 
one of the biggest lacks, I, w I was brought up in therapeutic communities, as I've said, and my, my basic training was in how to be in a group. What happens in a group? What happens to me in a group? How other people behave when groups are going through various experiences, etc. If there was one thing I could do as uh, an arrogant, um, bossy baboon, it would be to intimidate the system into making sure every nurse, doctor, clinician, etc. is taught about group processes, is taught about how to live in a group, be in a group, work with difference in a group, work with hierarchy in a group, work with difference between profession, race, gender, etc. in groups. Because groups can either, as teams, help people with the self-overcoming and the constant management of all this cost, or they can hinder it. Groups can help buffer the anxiety that's coming from the bigger world, uh, or they can actually increase it. They can help ad adaptation to the system around and support with that, or they can make it go completely crazy. Groups can become sites of passivity, of responsibility shifting, of pointless conflict, of resentment, etc. Tim Dartington and colleagues talk about responsibility shifting through narrowing down of the primary task in teams under pressure. Our team's under pressure, so what started as a readiness to work with you and if we found a limit to what we could do or if you needed something that my team don't do, we'd help you make the link. Under pressure, what we start to do is to say, well, it's not really our job, but we'll try and do it and it's them up the road who should be doing it and then it all starts to become rivalrous argumentative, conflictual, etc. And there's loads of case studies of hospital communities where different departments have fallen at war with each other through this responsibility shifting. Loads of, re of research about good leaders who, as we were talking about earlier today, can manage their team and prevent some of that acting out and that, that anxiety spilling into the team, but act like warlords when they relate to other teams. Uh, so they have a face like a pussycat into their team and a face like a shark into the rest of the system, or the other way around, a face like a pussycat to the chief executive and a face like a shark to the people they manage. This issue of managing the boundary between the team and the rest of the world is something that I don't know many team leaders who've ever been helped with. I don't know many managers who've been helped to understand the responsibilities to manage anxiety, to not pass it on, but also to enable it to be real and managed by the people around them, rather than getting into passive modes of passing it on, or aggressive modes of bullying people into getting, it, getting over it, or protectiveness that destabilizes the system. If I'm getting passionate, it's because that particular area feels to me to be... We've had so much knowledge over so long about the behavior of groups. We've, we've known it from behavior of teams in war, on ships, in Boy Scout troops, in, in every kind of setting. And we don't apply that knowledge to one of the most complicated and stressful enterprises in the Western world. So organizational processes around us can defend against the anxiety involved in the task in positive and negative ways. And they can play out all sorts of strange behaviors and create strange relationships. They can either help people manage the anxiety and the relationships involved in the task, or they can actually block off that management. They can buffer anxiety in the organization around them, or they can pass it on in toxic ways. And of course, they're constantly destabilized by restructuring. Over the last 20 years, this beehive, the NHS, has been prodded and beaten by sticks, by anxious people trying to get more honey out of it and resenting the fact that they're investing time into it. So often that the teams that are needed to support people in managing all this anxiety and this stress, this self-overcoming, are constantly destabilized. How do you build a long enough relationship to understand how you behave under stress? How do you develop a solid enough relationship to be able to help another person manage their negative side. How do you dare to say, Mike, you're a bully, to somebody you've just been shoved in a room with because of the last restructuring? Now, I may be 
a bit plaintive here, but I'll turn that round and say perhaps we should be able to use what we know about families and teams to argue for different ways of managing change and restructuring in organisations. And at the very least, to understand the degree of loss that's involved in the changing of relationships. The managers and the politicians, and indeed some others, who've been conned or have conned themselves into believing that change is always for the best. To minimise the loss and the pain in breaking relationships between staff and patients, between staff and each other, etc. Instead of at least acknowledging that loss and helping people move on is a scandal, and I've been part of it. These organisational processes are also infested or invested with quite a lot of social discourses, some of which I've been teasing you with all the way through. The turning of the healthcare relationship into one of giving a commodity in response to a choice or a purchase needs management. It, th these things may be inevitable. They may be part of a modern, big, complex technological world. But they're seriously dangerous if the side effects are not managed. So the commodification of the, of, of the, of the, uh, uh, of the service can become dangerous and can undermine the intelligent kindness I've been talking about. The industrialization into processes, whether they are evidence-based or not, has the danger of turning people, patients, into inconveniences who don't follow the process, staff into people who aren't managing to get people through the process correctly, even though they're that part of the wheel, that, part, that cog in the system, etc., etc. Industrialization is a necessary thing. Steve Eilif, the uh, professor of general practice, says it's inevitable. But let's at least acknowledge its limitations and not mix it up with the processes that we're trying to uh, achieve by industrialising our service. Performance management and regulation. I'm not suggesting we don't need any performance management or regulation, but the degree we, we really need to understand the anxiety it can provoke, the behaviours it can provoke in both the regulator and the inspector and in the inspected and in the performance managed, the gaming that's happened around waiting lists over the years, the lies, damn lies and statistics that have been played by many institutions in trying to manage off and keep off the inspection regime are not to be surprising. Uh, we need to be aware that these are dangers in the system. I've mentioned competition uh, and I would only make a small comment about the purchaser-provider split. It may be essential I've been a purchaser, but I've also watched the purchasers treat the providers with contempt, i.e., we've got the right number, we've got the right specification, we've given you enough money, if you've got any problems with it, it's your problem, you're doing it badly. I've also seen, and I've also been a provider, I've seen providers run rings around purchasers and tell damned lies across that boundary the other way. So we need to recognise that these boundaries, these arrangements, these discourses, might be important, might indeed be necessary, but they have enormous side effects that need management. At the very least, they distract from the process of the virtuous circle, and that distraction should be minimised. More importantly, if I lead them, I can lead them in a way that floods you all with anxiety. If we don't get this specification responded to by Thursday, they'll close us down. Anybody ever been in a setting where that kind of conversation's gone on? I have. Or we can do it in a way that holds the anxiety, that manages it, that says that if you do your job well, we'll meet the performance targets. And I've, I've worked with people who can convey that as well. So these discourses need to be understood as what, as what they are. I'm not trying to argue that we shouldn't be managing or rationing or organising the system, but we should be aware of what the effects they have on the plant we're trying to grow. And Susan Long, an Australian who studies organisations in the private and the public sector, points to a trend in all organisations over the last few years of moving towards the perverse organisation, where instrument instrumental relations are dominant, people are used as a means to an end, 
or people are treated as if they're failing to meet my ends. Individual gain at the expense of the common good becomes common, and turning a blind eye to difficulty becomes common. Now that is the story of the Francis Report, where instead of people nurturing the virtuous circle or whatever plant we want to talk about, Everything was geared on achieving goals to do with what the board was scared of, what the intentions of the finance department were, etc., etc. Instead of the processes being there to grow the plant, the processes became the means to an end, and the people in the system become objects who are used towards the uh, those ends. So the the people who wander around the streets of our organizations saying you can always get more for less are not only lying, they're putting us into a double bind because if we say, well, we can't, or we can, but the team next to us can't because they've already become efficient, or the manager who says, it'll be great, we'll reorganize our mental health teams so that this kind of service will happen, and it's all great and there's no loss, means that everybody in the system has to start denying what they know, which is there is a loss, nothing's perfect. So even at that sort of level, the perverse organization is very easily grown. And the biggest dimension of danger, if you like, we would suggest, that leads to the mismanagement of those discourses on the previous slide, and that leads to the collapse of the hedonic system, is the turning of a blind eye in people who are so anxious they don't look at the negative consequences of what they do. And there are negative consequences to every decision we make, or nearly every decision we make. And to work in systems where we've got a jolly hockey sticks attitude that says, don't worry, it's all for the best, there's no loss, there's no, no downside to anything we do, is dangerous medicine. And I would suggest that the board at Mid Staffordshire Hospital were not that different from boards elsewhere. They got caught into those anxious cycles. They got caught into believing that everything was for the best. They got caught into not daring to see what was in front of their eyes. And their frontline staff started to go blind as well. Luckily, in some wards, they didn't. So what I am suggesting is conscious, mindful management of these processes, whether you're a ward manager or a chief executive, can make a difference. So, what we've been talking about in terms of nurturing this intelligent kindness is how to promote and sustain compassionate bearing of the patient in mind and of the colleague. How to generate imaginative understanding of the contribution <coughs> my task can make, the mop and the bucket in my examples, and how to instill in people and support a confident belief in their own value and freedom to act which is something that industrialization makes quite difficult. And then finally, the knowledge and the repertoire to do it. And I'm sorry, I've gone over and I do apologize. Um, to cultivate our plant, we need to recognize anxiety and to manage that intelligently. We must not confuse monitoring and regulating with managing our plant. However important monitoring and regulating it, it is not the process that grows the plant. We need to recognize that mindful, honest relationships are critical across the system, and I banged on about teamwork. <coughs> Reflective practice has got to be rescued from being an expensive luxury, and we need human stories about the life of staff and patients, not just questionnaires uh, on scales of one to five, did you enjoy this? We need human stories that show the totality of a story so you can see what's going on. And we need to guard against perverse organizational culture. And I've gone over my 15 minutes, and I do apologize, Sean. So uh, thank you for bearing with me. <laughs>